in Daniel 9, and uh, there are a few loose ends I want to pick up there before we move on, but the point here being that uh, there was or will be, based on this being a very end-time prophecy that was in fact sealed until the end, and nobody trying to interpret it until very close to the end uh, could make sense of it. Uh, people have tried to say that it was all uh, fulfilled in times past, whether it be Antiochus Epiphanes or Gentile kings or whatever. Uh, but if it's sealed till the end, then obviously those, if they were minor fulfillments, were not the final ones. So everything basically that's laid out in the book of Daniel is just ahead of us. Uh, in considering that, we have to look very carefully and very closely at what it says. I read one verse down here in Daniel 9 and uh, verse 26. We were talking, we had been talking about how there would be a command or an order to rebuild Jerusalem uh, a few verses before this. And here it talks about someone coming in to defile or make it desolate, as per Christ's words in Matthew 24, and as we saw uh, earlier in this very chapter. But in verse 26, it talks about how the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So this shows that both the city and the sanctuary, or the temple where the sanctuary was located, will have to be in existence at that time. But the question has been asked, why build it and then have it immediately, or almost immediately, destroyed? I looked that word up in verse 26, destroy, and it doesn't necessarily mean the physical destruction of everything there. And the context of Daniel, I think, bears that out. This, uh, this word destroy is in Strong's number 7843, uh, second, which means to corrupt, to spoil, to ruin, to mar, or to destroy. And in most places this word is used in the Old Testament it refers to corruption. It's used in Genesis 6, I think, three times, talking about the moral corruption that occurred uh, within society before uh, Noah built the ark. So, uh, it starts out with that meaning. And in the prophecies, it is also used to show moral decadence or uh, defilement or spoil or corruption. So, let's look at the context of some of the scriptures here in Daniel about the sanctuary, the temple, the sanctuary within the temple, uh, and see what the sense of it is. Let's start in chapter 8, verse 13. I'll just quickly hit a few of these. I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said to that certain saint which spoke, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. So it does not speak here of the physical destruction so much as the defilement and casting down the truth in verse 12. So whatever happens here is a desolation or a loss of or a corruption of truth and proper practice. Uh, in that particular context. Notice verse 14, And he said to me, Under 2,300 days, possibly meaning mornings and evenings when the sacrifices were done, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So apparently it is still intact. It will be desolated or corrupted or defiled, but then it will be cleansed. And it's not my purpose here to get into all the technicalities of of timing and all that, but to point out that uh, there's something there still to be cleansed, to be prepared. Uh, 9, verse 17. 
Now therefore, uh, in Daniel's prayer, Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and cause your face to shine upon your sanctuary that is desolate for the eternal's sake. So here, it's referring to the sanctuary that will have been made desolate, and how his face would be made again, perhaps, to shine upon it, and that was Daniel's prayer. So we know the defilement comes at the end of the 70 weeks spoken of, and uh, Christ spoke of it there again in Matthew 24. Uh, Now, chapter 11, and verse 45. This is speaking of the king of the north here. There's a a great deal of back and forth uh, between the king of the south and the king of the north in chapter 11. And I think we see those forces shaping up before our very eyes today. Uh, But here is an interesting thing that's said about the king of the north and how tidings from the east and the north would trouble him. And he would go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. Now, if he's going to set his headquarters up in Jerusalem, in the holy mountain of God, uh, it appears to me then that it would still be intact. In other words, there's a reason to go there. Now, I do believe firmly that uh, the original promised land was in the southwestern United States and expanded from there before Israel was taken captive across the Atlantic. And the site that I believe was Jerusalem did have a sea on either side of it. And you can still see those seabeds there. But the ruler of the New World Order... Uh, is going to recognize, because of some things that are going to happen, where the true Jerusalem was and is, although desolate today. But it is that desolation is going to be removed, and the temple and the city will be built there, according to Daniel 9, and 70 weeks later, or from the time that the order is given, 70 weeks later, will have been built and then corrupted by one who sets up an abomination there. So that's what is coming just ahead. There are references made earlier in chapter 11, uh, verse 16. It talks about this individual standing in the glorious land, which by his hand shall be consumed. He's going to take it over. doesn't necessarily mean he's going to destroy everything there, but he will certainly take it over. Uh, and when he comes, verse 30, he will have indignation, middle of the verse, against the holy covenant, so shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence or communication with them that forsake the holy covenant. So disaffected people who have forsaken the way, the laws, the dictates of God are going to collude with this false leader. And arms shall stand on his part, so he's going to be a, have the military might, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength. There again, uh, as opposed to completely dismembering it or destroying it utterly, it talks here about pollution, or to use a synonym, corruption. He'll pollute the sanctuary of strength and take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. Now, Christ said, when you see that abomination or that corruption or that pollution set up within the sanctuary of God, uh, and this has been done before in Solomon's temple, in Ezra and Nehemiah's and later Herod's temple, abominations were set there. So this will be in that line. It will happen again. It would appear from this that there has to be a daily sacrifice, and to do that you have to have a temple and a sanctuary and an altar to do it. But he will make it desolate. Well, what does Christ say? He says, when you see that abomination set, flee to the mountains of Judea. 
let him who reads understand, is the way it's put in parenthesis there. In other words, maybe the Jerusalem people think is Jerusalem, and the mountains they think might be Judea aren't the place at all. This is something you must understand, that it does not naturally meet the eye. So you flee from that abomination, and that makes it spiritually desolate, doesn't it? When the people who are trying to obey God and working at it have to flee from before those who totally hate God. Anyway, verse 32, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. So he's going to sidle up to those that have been or could be corrupted, and if they aren't already, he will corrupt them by flatteries, by promising all kinds of things, I suppose. <laughs> Maybe that you can buy and sell if you'll receive my mark, among other things. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Here we see a division among people who understand God's laws and his ways. Some will depart from the truths that they have learned. Others will be strong and do exploits through the power of God. Now, there's an awful lot said there for instruction for you and me. Which side of this coin do you want to be on? I think we would all prefer to be strong, and we would prefer to do exploits rather than suck up to a false power that would flatter us with all kinds of promises, and then in the end, destroy us. It does say... And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. Yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. Now I would assume that this means those who understand truth who are left behind when the flight of Matthew 24 takes place. They will be subject to be corrupted or they will repent and stand and then be destroyed or martyred during that period of time. Because that sets off the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. Uh, Christ makes that clear in Matthew 24. When that is set up, then is when you flee, and that begins the 1260 days of preaching to the kingdoms of this world that will begin. So even those who do understand, who have been laid a sin or complacent or self-righteous or whatever, will be left behind, and they would be able to instruct many. But, God said, if you do not turn to him with your heart and diligently obey, you won't make that cut and will be left behind in the tribulation. So they will fall by the sword, by flame, by captivity, and by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be helped with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flattery. So God won't help much, but he'll help a little, okay, if you're under those circumstances at that time. And some of them of understanding shall fall, to try them, to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. So they'll be cast into the tribulation to be tried, to be tested, to, be, to go through the things that we should be right now putting ourselves through. In other words, we still have a lot of human nature, a lot of sins, a lot of faults, a lot of weaknesses, a lot of bad habits, bad thought patterns, all kinds of things that are wrong with us to this day. And we will put the pressure on ourselves now when God has scattered us and given us the insecurity that we feel. We will respond now 
or we will have to respond then under not only difficult spiritual pressures, but also then physical pressures on top of it. In other words, if we don't respond to the spiritual pressures today, we will have to face the physical pressures. And I don't want any of us to have to do that. You think it's bad now? Wait till they start looking for you with a physical sword or take away your Walmart food cart or whatever and there is nothing. There are tough times coming. Now, the ground to some degree has been set here We've talked about Solomon's temple and its great glory. We've talked about uh, a little a little bit about, well, the tabernacle in the wilderness before that. And we've talked about, to some degree, the reconstruction in Ezra's day and Nehemiah's with the wall of Jerusalem and the conditions that went there. But now we face the end time and the things that Daniel is talking about. And I want to lay a little background and then go through the story once again and put some pieces together here because it's one thing to study history and what has occurred, and in, that can be interesting, but it is more exciting and more timely when we consider the things that we will experience yet in our lifetimes, at least for most of us, I think. So to begin the story, and I'm not going to go there and go through the whole thing, but you have to go back to the book of Esther. There was a plot back then to destroy all Jews, even as there are plots today to remove not only perhaps all Jews, but all Christians, and anyone that does not cater to the new world order that is about to come upon us. And the story of Esther is of a king there who had taken over the Babylonian Empire with the fall of ancient Babylon, King Ahasuerus, who had a wife, and uh, she didn't do everything that the king decreed, and therefore he set her aside and began to look for a new queen. Now Mordecai was a Jew who was in the court of the king, and he had a niece named Esther. And the king had decreed that all the fairest young ladies of the kingdom should be brought forth, prepared for it, and then brought forth that he might make a selection for who would be the new queen. Well, she was Jewish, and she found favor with the king, who subsequently married her. Then... They had a child, and to the best of the historical records I have been able to put together, that child was named Cyrus, who became the king of the original Babylon Empire, which became the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Now that Cyrus did uh, issue some decrees that finally culminated in the saving of the lives of the Jewish people of that day. And he is apparently the same one <coughs> that Ezra uh, was serving in the court of when Ezra began to think about Jerusalem and the destruction that had occurred when, Babylon, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it before Babylon was itself destroyed before the Medes and the Persians when they shut down the Euphrates and changed things there. Uh, it has recently been shut down again as well, the Euphrates over that comes out of Turkey. Turkey shut off the water flow to uh, everybody downstream. They're damming it up and utilizing it themselves. Scary proposition for people downstream. Anyway, when Ezra began to pine for Jerusalem as it had been, and to wish to rebuild, uh, Cyrus noticed that Ezra had difficulty. Uh, same with, ne with Nehemiah. I don't want to mix the stories up too much. But uh, in any case, when you come to the book of Ezra, 
Cyrus himself made a decree that Jerusalem should be rebuilt, or that the temple first. Uh, Nehemiah dealt with the wall of Jerusalem, but the temple itself is what I'm trying to say in Ezra. And out of the collection of things that had come to Cyrus as a result of the Babylonian captivity, the temple vessels and so on, I think uh, the book of Ezra names about 42,000, no, that was the people, I forget the number, anyway, thousands and thousands of temple vessels that had come out of uh, the original temple and out of Jerusalem. And they had been taken and put in storage in Babylon. And of course, Belshazzar died when he drank wine out of and partied out of some of those vessels. So Cyrus made the decree, and he put Ezra in charge uh, with those under him, Zerubbabel and Joshua, in the story in Ezra, to, he commissioned them to go build the temple. He sent uh, monetary help. He sent a decree of protection. He sent the temple vessels themselves to be reinstalled within the temple. So here was a king who was part Israelite himself, and that may have been the reason God set these things up behind the scenes, who would have a good feeling toward the Jews of that day. Uh, so God can prepare people ahead of time with their attitudes and so on to do the right things at the right times. And so it was with Cyrus. Uh, he supported it, but he delegated it to those who were the Jews of that day, and then they went about the building of that temple. So, in prophecy, we can fast forward to the book of Haggai, where we have been, of course, many times, but I want to tie this together with it again since we're talking about the temples, not only past, but future. And here in the book of Haggai, which is an end-time prophecy, we find two individuals. Uh, we know who they are in end-time prophecy by putting together Zechariah 14.4. Uh, not 14, I mean 4.14, excuse me. I'm not normally dyslexic, but sometimes... Uh, chapter 4, verse 14, speaking of Zerubbabel and Joshua, uh, using the names from the past of different individuals who certainly would not be named that physically. He said, do you know who these are? And he said, no. And then the answer was, in verse 14, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the eternal of the whole earth. And the only other uh, reference to these two is in Revelation 11. So, it has to be speaking of the same two individuals and the job that they are to do at the end time. So, identifying the characters, characters here is important to the story. Then we go back to the beginning of Haggai, <coughs> and this is set in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month and the first day of the month came the word of the eternal. There is some uh, confusion among historians in defining exactly who Cyrus and Darius were. And it's much like you'd have a family where it, there was John Sr., John Jr., and John the Third, and John the Fourth. The same confusion exists when you try to put together the dynasties of the ancient Egyptians. Sometimes the names are similar, and sometimes there are two or three dynasties going at once. And to try to put that genealogy together is a major difficulty. And so even among these kings that existed in the period of time of Daniel and so on, there's a certain amount of confusion as to which Cyrus is which, and, and even Cyrus or is called Darius by some historians. But for the sake of the story, whichever Darius this is, or Cyrus, if it be the case, uh, during that period of time, Haggai was given a message that he took to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. 
Now remember, those, as we just said, were there in Ezra and <coughs> Sheshbazar, the Persian name for Zerubbabel, was given the temple vessels. And those two men were basically the ones behind the whole thing along with Ezra. So here's the message to these two that we just identified as being the two witnesses of the end time. Thus speaks the eternal of hosts. Here's the message. This people say the time has not come, the time that the eternal's house should be built. And when I bring this up, I find a certain amount of opposition. <laughs> because people will not believe it. And as I've said many times before, if we were speaking here only of a spiritual temple, everybody who is even claims Christianity of any sort would say we have to build a spiritual temple based upon New Testament scriptures about our bodies being the temple of the Spirit and so on and so forth. And those certainly are valid. But you wouldn't get any argument by saying we need a spiritual temple. Where you get the argument is when you start talking about a physical temple. So, that's the first thing that is brought up here. This people say, it's not time to do that. Name a time that is inappropriate to build a spiritual temple. There is none. Always that. So this has to be something different. Not spiritual, but physical. Then came the word of the eternal by Haggai the prophet, saying... That was, that was the entire first part of the message, one verse. People don't agree that this needs to be done. So then comes another message, where God says, Is it time, O you, to dwell in your fine homes, and this house lie waste? Now, re remember that from Jeremiah 9, and Isaiah 61, and 4, and 58, and various other scriptures... The Jerusalem has been lying desolate for many, many generations. There is nothing there, no dwelling, no people living there, and it has to be rebuilt along with the other towns and cities of Judea around it. So he says, is it time for us to live in our fine homes and the house of God and the city of God, for that matter, lie desolate and waste? Now therefore, thus says the eternal of hosts, consider your ways. A lot of people say we don't need a physical temple or Jerusalem, yet we just read in Daniel that there's an order coming right at the end, very near the end of the age, to build Jerusalem, and that the streets will be built during troublous times, and the sanctuary will also be there to be corrupted or defiled. So, at the very end time, that city will be built and the sanctuary within the temple included with it. And that only happens, that order given, 70 weeks before the Great Tribulation started by the abomination being set up occurs. So it's right in front of us, not very far away, okay? So he says, it is the time. In other words, you're saying it's not. God is saying it is. And he says, think about it. Consider your ways. Are we in a society today where we work hard maybe and bring in not much? We eat, but you have not enough. The foodless foods that people are eating do not have the minerals, the vitamins, the nutrition within them. And you can just eat junk food until it's coming out your ears and it will not satisfy you. It just addicts you to wanting more and more. So you eat, but you're not satisfied. You can't get enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. There again, the ingredients of most of our modern drinks are addictive, but they do not satisfy the needs of the body. It's just the way it is. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. You get your check, you cash it, and... Falls right out of your pocket, it seems. There's not much there. It just doesn't go very far. So he's speaking about right now. I, they can talk about all this financial recovery all they want to, but prices are going up. I saw an article just recently that says, there is no inflation unless you consider food and oil and clothing and everything else. <laughs> 
pretty much true. But we have this appearance of still being wealthy because they're creating about $80 billion a month and plugging it into the stock market, essentially, so that it makes things look rosy. But that doesn't make your cupboard or your refrigerator fill when you go down and put 20 bucks into one small baggie. Uh, so we're under pretty deplorable conditions, and it's getting worse by the day, the week, and the month. And it's about to get a whole lot worse. <clears throat> so he says, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build a house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, says the Eternal. So we're in a situation that is a catch-22. You can't get anywhere, you can't do much of anything, so God says, okay, put me first. Build me a temple, and I will dwell there, and I will glorify it, says the Eternal. Now there's something we could do that would please God. So he says, that's why you run to your own houses, and the heaven over you stayed from dew, verse 10, and the earth is stayed from her fruit, and I call for a drought upon the land, and on the mountains, and on the corn, and on the new wine, and on the oil, and so on. And we have great drought across much of our food-producing areas today. The one in California is worsening by the day, uh, and growing in size. So under these conditions then, when things are coming apart, inflation is getting worse, food is becoming more and more scarce, under circumstances wherein an economy is not improving but get, grows worse, and you could say that physically and spiritually. At that time, verse 12, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the eternal God. So, just a remnant of the people, roughly 10%, as we see in Isaiah and other places, obeyed the voice of the eternal their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the eternal their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the eternal. So, some people will take these things to heart. And then another message came where God said, I am with you, into verse 13, says the eternal, and the eternal stirred Zerubbabel and Joshua, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did uh, work in the house of the Eternal of Hosts, their God. So there will be some who are spiritually aware enough, awake enough, alive enough, if you will, to respond. And then the message continues to these two and the residue of the remnant of the people in chapter 2, verse 2. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? How do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it? There's nothing. Uh, we've gone over that before. I do believe that Herbert Armstrong started the former temple, and under him many were called to an understanding of God's commandments and his truths to some degree. But it became a very complacent, self-righteous, organization that did not yet have all truth, but certainly had a lot, and God blew it apart in spite of fine buildings and big income and all those things. He tells us in Lamentations and Revelation and many other places in Scripture that he blew it apart. But now within that period of time when there will still be old men around who can compare the one with the other they will say that the latter temple is much greater in glory. Now, I would say that that has both a physical and a spiritual implication. The house for God that Herbert Armstrong dedicated, that auditorium, was nice. It was a beautiful building. Uh, very, very well done by the standards of buildings today. Top-notch, if you will. But when you consider the one that is about to be built, it will have the original silver and gold temple vessels. It will probably have the gold furnishings and decoration on it as Solomon's temple did. 
And I do believe that many of those temple vessels came originally from Solomon's mines, and I think that they will come from the same source today. That's where the gold came from to build them, and probably King Solomon's mines are very close to where they are being stored today. <coughs> we'll see here in just a moment that God comments on this as he goes down. So what is to be produced here at the end is going to be much greater in value and scope and beauty than that which you and I have experienced in Worldwide Church of God. So he says in verse 4, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and be strong, all you people of the land, and work, for I am with you, says the Eternal of hosts. So a job has to be done. He names the leaders, whoever they turn out to be as individuals here at the end, and the people to work. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Mitzrayim, so my spirit remains among you, fear you not. If he could deliver them by his great hand then, he can do it again. If he could do great works then, he can do them again. And he's promised that he shall in other places to go with this. So he will be there. Verse 6, For thus says the Eternal of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. That is a prophecy. It is something he has not yet done through the annals of our known human history. But it is to be done at the end. So there again is a clue of the timing of this. This is to be done a little while before the heavens and the earth are shaken. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Eternal of hosts. Then he makes a comment, sort of out of the blue. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Eternal of hosts. He owns the universe, he owns the planet, and he owns the precious things that are on the planet. And the vessels that were brought back for Ezra and Zerubbabel and Joshua to put in the temple, I believe are still in existence. And I believe they will be brought back and put there again. So the silver is God's and the gold is God's. And the original Cyrus sent those things to be put in that temple. He, was, he had a good disposition and attitude toward it. And I think that that will be the case again. Now, Cyrus had all the treasures of Babylon, uh, apart from the temple vessels and so on, but those, see, were allocated for a particular use that they had been used for before, and therefore were used for again, and I think that the final fulfillment of that is just before us. So, those parts of the treasures that will be discovered soon... Uh, are specifically related to the temple. Other parts of gold or silver or mining or whatever might be there as well, might have other uses, even as Cyrus had uses for uh, the treasures of Babylon. But those that were set for God's temple and God's use, he says are his, and in fact it's all his, but sometimes he allows people to use certain things as they please. And it doesn't all come from Cyrus. Remember the story in Ezra where it says the people themselves, and Cyrus even directed that, that the people make an offering and do what they could and support the work that was to be done. So part of it will come from an end-time Cyrus, and some of it will come from the remnant themselves. <clears throat> anyway, he says in verse 9, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, says the Eternal of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, says the Eternal of hosts. So if God is going to come and glorify, which he says, uh, he will bring peace there. In the meantime, we have dissension, we have trouble, we have fraction and division, we have uh, all kinds of troubles and issues within the church of God today. 
It has been blown apart, and there are warring factions back and forth, and people setting themselves above others and judging others to be spiritually immature or inadequate, i.e. Laodiceans, while they themselves are okay as the Philadelphians. So most people have that mindset. The remnant will not have that mindset. The self-righteousness, the ego, the vanity, the self-righteousness will go away. People will see what God is doing, and it will be a humbling process, and they will see what needs to be done, and they will set their hearts to the task rather than criticizing and putting each other down and stabbing each other in the back and splitting and dividing. Those people will come together in unity. We're not going to see unity within the body of Christ until this day. It will not come here or anywhere else. But God does promise it's coming before he shakes the heavens and the earth. And as the temple in Jerusalem are built, people are going to set aside their attitudes, their purposes, and addict and commit themselves to God's purposes. So a lot of this penny-ante and hurtful conduct and attitudes and words that people have today are going to be, are going to go away. And if the people themselves do not repent of that, they themselves will also go away. Because God will not have the attitude of Satan among people who are building his temple. The attitudes of Satan are hatred, malice, backbiting, character uh, destruction. All those negative issues are from Satan himself. They are not attributes of the Spirit of God. So people will either repent of those attitudes and get beyond hatred, bitterness, and putting down negativity in any form, or they will go away. That's just bottom line. That's realistic. God will have peace among the remnant of his people. It will be there. And you and I will learn to be peacemakers and live in peace, or we will simply be disallowed and not go there. Okay? We have a choice today. We can repent. We can change. We can get rid of the ungodly satanic attitudes. Or we will not. If we do not, we'll go into tribulation. And then he uses this analogy here of the holiness and unholiness. And he says, you, either, you have to be holy. You can't be unholy. And if you touch the unholy, you become unholy. So, unholiness of attitude, unholiness of people, it doesn't matter. Then he shows that at a certain point, he is going to begin to bless. And that that which is not brought forth, that which has been in famine of the word and famine physically, God is going to begin to produce uh, fruit in verse 19 of chapter 2. And then he says, speak to Zerubbabel in verse 21, saying that he is about to overthrow the armies and the nations and shake the heavens and the earth, and that Zerubbabel will at that time be made uh, a signet or a banner or someone to look to. We see that also in Zechariah 4. Uh, I won't go through 2 and 3 again, but he does talk there about how things are not as we would like them in chapter toward the end of chapter 1 and how the church has been destroyed and then there will come some to rebuild and that is as it is rebuilt in chapter 2 Christ is going to come and dwell among us and bring peace and he will raise up out of his holy habitation in verse 13 and come to do the work but it will be at Zion as you see in verse 7 uh, in verse 10, in that day. Then it shows a leader in chapter 3, 
where some of these signs and wonders will begin to appear among the men that sit before him, and he will have the eyes of all seven churches turned there because of the things that God does. But it is a different leader, Zerubbabel, who is going to build the temple. Chapter 4, verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands also shall finish it. And you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me to you. He says, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God, up in verse 6. So he will be the the main leader. Joshua will be second in control, as Moses was the main leader and uh, Aaron was the high priest. That's the way this is set up as well. Now, the story of the spiritual temple is talked about in the verses following these. I don't want to go there today. I want to save that perhaps for next week or when I get to it. But I want to show the physical side of this today and how it has to be done in the time just before us. Now, let's go to uh, Isaiah 44. Remember the context of this. I think... Uh, pretty conclusively in my mind, the Isaiah, the, mainly in the 30s, is speaking of Herbert Armstrong and Hezekiah being, uh, uh, or performing pretty much the same functions. Hezekiah was essentially a righteous king. Uh, he had health problems, and apparently with the turning back of the sundial, and that may be when we went from 360 to 365 and a quarter days in a year. He was given 15 years extra of life. Herbert Armstrong had the same thing, had a heart attack, almost died. In fact, he thought he was dead, I mean later. But his health was restored to some degree, and he lived about another 15 years. Toward the and then at the end of this story, he had Hezekiah had showed everything he had to the Assyrian king. Well, Herbert Armstrong went all over the world, showing anybody that listened all the things that he had built, the uh, house for God, the campuses, and so on, and uh, was showing off what he had, and he had his own vanity and pride and ego involved in that to some degree. But Hezekiah got in trouble for that. And then, God said to Hezekiah in chapter 39, uh, your sons will be taken into Babylon. There they will be made eunuchs, but there shall be peace in your day. And Hezekiah says, well, that's, I like that. I don't know that he liked the eunuch part, but he liked the peace in his day. But Herbert Armstrong, and, and that actually happened. His sons were castrated in Babylon uh, when they were taken captive. But in Herbert Armstrong's case, the Tkachas took over and moved the church right back into Protestant Babylon. And there, the church became a eunuch. In other words, powerless, unable to produce... Uh, and as Zechariah 5 points out, it was the, the two unclean birds, which I equate to the Tkachas, took the church back into Babylon and set it on its base there. But it says a lead weight was put in its, jammed in its mouth and a cover put over the basket they were carried there in. In other words, it would be shut up and become powerless, or in those terms, a eunuch, unable to do anything. So the broadcast ceased, the plain truth ceased, all those things stopped. And then Isaiah 40 shows the beginning of a new work, a voice crying in the wilderness, and how people out of that group would be his witnesses, not just two, but quite a few. Chapter 44, verse 8 says that. You are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? <laughs> no, there is no God I know not any. So he's beginning another work after Herbert Armstrong's work was finished. 
He does talk in verse 22 about the peoples of Israel and how he has blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions and as a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And then he gives, says to the heavens to sing, for the eternal has done it, and the forest to break into singing and so on. In other words, joy at the forgiveness of our Laodiceanism, of our nonchalance, lackadaisical, asleep at the switch attitude, and God forgives and removes this cloud of frustration that we've had over us and begins to bring peace and unity, as we read would happen there in the book of Haggai, and we know when it will happen. So, about the time God begins to turn to his true believers, and they turn to him before he does, uh, we find another phenomenon occurring. See verse 24. Thus says the Eternal, your Redeemer, and he that formed you from the womb. I am the Eternal that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself. In other words, the world as a whole does not recognize that there is a true living God. A being that is alert, awake, alive, and has great power in the universe. They worship a dead Jesus, or they worship a God who has grown old, or who was only a phantom in their mind in the first place. But most people do not recognize that there is a living Creator and His Son with Him, who indeed was resurrected from the dead. He is a living God. I do not purport for one moment to worship a dead God. What does that gain you, to worship a dead God? No, the Christ I believe in is alive. He is active. <clears throat> he is going to come dwell with his people in power. <clears throat> in other words, he states here, that that's the God he is. That frustrates the tokens of the liars and makes diviners mad. People who prognosticate, prophesy things that they think will happen. <clears throat> when he actually does what he says he'll do, it'll drive them crazy. It makes their knowledge foolish. So there are a lot of different theories about how people came to be on the earth, whether created by a God or evolution, or whatever thing people dream up. But truly, there is a God. I don't know how long animals existed on the earth, pre to the recreation of Genesis 1. Uh, there are a lot of artifacts that show that that might have been a long time. Even Herman Hay, who had done an awful lot of research, called them humanoids. We call them, in, as college students, herminoids, since he was the one that, that brought it up. But <clears throat> nonetheless, there is evidence that there were creatures here, whether they were fully human or partially human or whatever. does not really concern me. I am concerned with what happened from Adam and Eve on down, because that's part of what I came from, and what God is now working with. So what came before that, I don't have a lot of time to try to figure out, and there is so little evidence of what actually occurred <clears throat> that I think it would be a futility in the first place. So when God gets on his high horse, and I don't say that in a wrong way, he has the biggest, highest horse around the greatest power around. He's going to make all the notions and theories of man foolish. And then he introduces something here. He says, The same God that confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. I think to that point, he's talking about the prophets in the Bible who put God's word forth and perhaps even in the end, those who read those words and expound upon them and make sure the people understand that they are still there to be 
accomplished and enforced. <clears throat> so the God who wrote those prophecies in the first place is going to confirm their meaning here at the end. But says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. <clears throat> now here's another verse <clears throat> that ties in with all of those that show that Jerusalem to this point has been desolate for many generations and no one living there. We went over some of those, I think, last week. But here's another confirmation. At the end time, Jerusalem will be inhabited. It is not today, not the original Jerusalem. That one in the Middle East is a farce that was built up later on. And we've been over that material. Even Constantine's mother went down to the Middle East back in the 300s and named a lot of the places that had never had biblical names before. And they rewrote history. Why do you think the book burnings that we read about in grade school and junior high, maybe, occurred to destroy the records of what actually had happened and to foist off a new Jerusalem, a false Jerusalem, a false image. So the true Jerusalem, God says, shall be inhabited. And to the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. Almost the exact same words as Isaiah 58, which follows this. <coughs> so there is a rebuilding to occur. And this is premillennial. Haggai and Zechariah make that very, very clear during the time of the two witnesses at the end, and the remnant who are faithful. Verse 27, that says to the deep... Be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. I believe God dried up the Red Sea. I believe he dried up the Jordan, pushed it back. The same God who did those things is again going to deliver his people in the end. So that's the God we're talking about. That says of Cyrus, now remember this is an end time prophecy, and what we went over to lay the background for this. There was a Cyrus who was a combination of Ahasuerus, the Gentile king, and Esther, the Jew. He was himself half Israelite, at least. So he had a, an affinity for his wife, and therefore for the Jews. He says, it says of Cyrus, and this is again is an end-time prophecy, an end-time Cyrus, uh, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Now, does that mean he understands anything spiritually? No, it does not, as we'll see a little later on. But he is someone who is performing a shepherd duty. Now, what about the original Cyrus? He looked over the flock of the Jews. He saw to it, by the decrees he made, that their enemies were destroyed and their lives were preserved. Is that not what a shepherd over a flock does? So he took over <coughs> the shepherdship of the Jews to that degree. Now, he did not become their spiritual leader, but he protected the flock of Jews. And I think that that same context applies here at the end time. There will be somebody whom God appoints, and we'll see twice down below, he does not know God. That's why this is prefaced in verse 24 that we just read, that this is the true God, the real living God of the universe, and that this person that we discuss here does not know him. And he will not rule over God's people, but he will help them do a job. It says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. So God says he will do what he's about to say, whoever this man might be at the end time. Now let's see what he is to do. Even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. So in the end time, 
He will come along and he will say, Jerusalem will be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. So whoever this individual is, these are things that he is going to say. And then God talks about the process that leads to that. Chapter 45. Thus says the Eternal to his anointed. Anointed here simply means someone chosen to do, or set aside for, or directed in this particular thing that he's talking about. It doesn't mean he's spiritually anointed. It just means he has been set aside to do a job. To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held... So this individual, whoever he is, God has held his hand. What do you do when you want to lead somebody, guide them, or help them through the dark? You take them by the hand and you hold the hand and, and walk them through. To subdue nations or peoples before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two hinged gates, and the gates shall not be shut. So whatever happens here, God is going to cause the understanding, the power of perhaps ancient kings and the things that they did to be revealed. Some gates will be opened that won't be shut. So before Cyrus, who conquered Babylon, uh, the gates could not be shut against him. So this person is going to have, as we'll see shortly, Great wealth, incredible wealth, and with wealth comes what? Power. So there'll be a certain amount of power here that may have some of the rulers of the nations of this world quaking before him. That's a great possibility, I think. With the silver and the gold that is God's comes the adoration Maybe not the cooperation, but the fear and the loosening of the loins of kings. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I'm feeling faint right at the moment. <laughs> I need to sit down. Um, I guess I did sit down. I'm okay. I'm okay. I just laid out. Get that water out from under the alpine. Yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, let me sit down. I'm about done anyway. Thank you. This is still on. As I was saying in conclusion, I do have a, uh, maybe I should explain. My dad had this. It's a, I, my heart will get out of rhythm once in a while and beat fast. And usually when that happens, or always so far at least, I'm able to, to hold my breath or put a finger here on this uh, gland or uh, even strain real hard, and it'll regulate. Usually that takes once or twice. But sometimes it makes me feel a little faint, uh, like it just did. So, I don't think God was striking me dead. I think uh, maybe maybe we get the emphasis here <laughs> of what is, uh, what is being said. I'm in Jeremiah now. I was in Isaiah. I mean, how that happened. But let's finish this thought here, <clears throat> now that uh, things are back almost to normal. My heart's still beating a little funny, but I'll, I'll take care of that here when we finish, or ask God to. Anyway, there's a certain uh, power that came to Cyrus when Babylon was conquered, and we have our nation about to be conquered today. And these temple treasures and the treasures of God are about to be revealed. Anyway, he says, I'll go before you in verse 2. 
and make the crooked places straight, and I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. So the things that have been preve- preventing what is to follow here from happening or occurring uh, will be removed. That God will take this individual by the hand and lead him through all of the difficulties to show him what needs to be found. Verse 3, And I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Eternal, which call you by your name, am the God of Israel. So here's an individual who doesn't really know who the God of Israel is, okay? So I'm going to make it known to you. And this is for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect. I have even called you by your name. I have surnamed you, though you have not known me. So here's an individual that God has placed a name upon that does not know God. I am the Eternal, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded you, though you have not known me. So again, it is said, this individual does not know God, doesn't realize there is a living Creator, and does not know Him, if he even suspects that there is such. And what's the purpose of all this? That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, from east to west, around the world, in other words, that there is none beside me, I am the eternal, and there is none else. So God is going to bring out the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of the secret places. And it is going to be so imposing, so powerful, that it is going to scare the kings of the earth when they see the incredible wealth that is there. And it is going to show the world who God is. Now remember what Haggai said? This temple, this city, will be built, and this Cyrus here has been set aside to announce that and to help accomplish it through the treasures of the temple vessels that God will reveal. So this is the how that it will occur. And it is done at the very end time to shake up the kings and the nations of this world And what God does with those treasures is going to prove to the world, whether they accept him or not, that he is God. And he is going to shake the heavens and the earth. And that ties in with Daniel and Revelation particularly, and the other prophecies, Isaiah 24, how the very foundations of the governments of this world will be shaken, and Christ will return as King of kings and Lord of lords. So there is to be an end-time temple built, and Jerusalem will be built and restored again. And what God brings there is going to prove to the world that there truly is a living God. So we have a great opportunity before us, if we can qualify spiritually to be part of that faithful remnant, to come and work and help in the temple. That's just the physical one so far. We'll address the spiritual temple next if I live that long.